Uh, while you're here, can you read the text for us? Luke 7 and verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. She was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Thanks, love. What do you think is the greatest power in the world? Sorry, Hannah's parents are here this morning. Welcome. (laughs) So good to have you both with us this morning. What's the greatest power in the world? Flying. 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 Oh, oh, like superpower, like flying? (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. What else? What other power? I'm going to tell you what it is. What's that? Willpower. Willpower? Ooh, that's a good one. Money. Lucifer. Yeah. I'm surprised none of you have said God. Um, I assumed someone would say God. What did you say, Jonah? China. Yeah, I thought something. China. Yeah, right. So all these things are great powers. The greatest power in the world today besides God is death. Death will reach everyone, even the great powers. Uh, Death is inescapable. Death isn't something any of us can avoid. Death is a great power, the greatest power outside of God. What's the opposite of death? Life. The opposite of death is life. Do you know what the enemy of death is? I can hear whispers, but my hearing is not super good. Jesus. Why is Jesus the enemy of death? Because he gives life. Jesus is literally called the author of life. What does an author do? Creates. Creates stories. Writes stories, speaks stories. An author makes something. An author creates characters. C.S. Lewis created Narnia. Narnia was not a real world. Isn't a real world. Sorry, not was. It is not a real world. Uh, Aslan isn't real. Uh, um, C.S. Lewis created it because he's the author. So what is Jesus as the author of life means that life is his creation. Therefore, death, the the opposite of life, is is not Jesus' creation. Jesus has not created death. Jesus has created life. And Jesus is therefore the enemy of the greatest power in the world, which is death. And none of us will escape it. Um, Anne said to me, interestingly, this week, when, when I visited, one time when I visited him and, and said, look, we weren't sure if you're going to live or die. He said, oh, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't matter either way. Said, what do you mean? He said, well, if I, went, if I died, I'd go be with Jesus. And if I live, I, I, I get to be with everyone else. It's, it's life either way. He's like, that's, that's true. I hope you don't say it to your children like that. But, 
I'm just kidding. It is true. Mother Teresa said, Death is nothing else but going home to God. The bond of love will be unbroken for all eternity. The bond of love will be unbroken for all eternity. The great loss for the Christian is not um, eternal death. That's, we've moved. The Bible says that we've moved from a position of death. We're in a position of death without God. With God, we've moved, with Christ, we've moved into a position of life. We can't be moved out of a position of life with Christ. So our eternal position is a position of life. But that doesn't mean it's our uh, always experience. We still experience uh, elements of death in our lives. But our position in Christ is a position of life. We've moved from death to life. We've moved from an old, old death to a new life. In Christ. So the great loss for the Christian is not that we can experience eternal death. We can't. We move, as Mother Teresa said, almost death is almost a doorway into eternal life. The great loss for the Christian is that in this life we don't enjoy or experience the life that God already has for us. That we experience certain deaths that are avoidable because we are in Christ. That's the potential great loss for the Christian that in the already new life that we have in Christ, we put up with certain deaths that are unnecessary. That we don't take hold of the life that we have in Christ. Um, have you ever noticed, I don't know if, you, how, if you've ever picked this up, but uh, it came to me this week as I was looking at this text, how terrible Jesus is at funerals. Uh, I don't know how good you are at funerals, uh, how much you like them, or how much you don't. Jesus was awful at them. The Bible tells us that Jesus goes to three funerals, two and a half he attends. Let me tell you about them real quick. One is in Matthew 9. Jesus is busy teaching. A religious leader comes to Jesus and asks him to come and raise his dead daughter. My daughter's dead. Please come give her life. And Jesus, he, he like, it's, a, it's a very big request, and Jesus likes it. And so he stops doing what he's doing, and he goes, okay. And he, and he starts to go to this religious leader's house. Along the way, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years touches the hem of his garment in faith and is healed. And Jesus pauses everything in the crowd standing there. And he said, woman, your faith has made you well. And she's restored to society. And then he continues to uh, walk to this man's house. And he arrives at the funeral. The harps and the, the, the um, flutes are playing. The funeral party has begun. They're going to hoist her up, walk her out of the city, and bury her into the dirt. The party has begun. Not the party, sorry. The, the, the ceremony, the, the noise, the music has begun. And Jesus goes, stop it. Shush. Stop the music. Get out of the room. I mean, they're there to prepare her body for the death. They're going to pick her up. Get out. Stop. I mean, can you imagine the offense? Don't try this. But if you want to know what it's like, go to a funeral and just tell everyone to stop doing what they're doing. I wouldn't recommend it, but just to get the feeling of what, what it was like, that's the feeling that was there. Stop. And then he says, she's not dead, she's asleep. Now these people are professionals. I mean, we're all professionals. We know the difference between alive and dead. The music has begun, the body wrapping has happened, and they're going to hoist her and bury her. And Jesus comes and says, stop. And then he goes in, and he says to her daughter, rise up, and she, she wakes up. Daughter, wake up. Wakes up, and, and she's restored to life. Then, another time, John 11, Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus that Lazarus is very sick and that he's going to die. Please come quick. Jesus doesn't. 
That's okay, Lazarus can wait. Lazarus dies. He gets, he gets uh, wrapped up, put some nice smelling things get put onto him because his body's going to start decaying and stinking. He gets put in a tomb and a, a stone gets rolled over the tomb. And four days later, Jesus shows up. As he shows up, he has compassion on the whole scene, what's happening, and fulfills the uh, Bible trivia question, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Ah, there you go. You're right in the middle of the story. None of us really know the story. We just know how to win Bible trivia questions. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. Many of you probably know the story. I didn't. I didn't. I could just answer the question. Jesus weeps. And then he goes and he says, Martha, roll away the stone. And you know what she says? Yeah, Nas got it. What, what? He stinks. No, I'm not going to do it. He's smelly. It's four days later, Jesus. This is going to be gross. And Jesus says, no, Martha, roll the stone away. And so she obeys Jesus and he rolls the stone away. And Jesus doesn't go in. He stands on the outside and he goes, Lazarus, come out. Any of you did like grew up in churches that had plays or, or listened to Carmen growing up? We had a moment in worship today that was like a flashback to the 80s. Those of you who are old enough to remember the 80s, those of you who are too young, which is most of you in the room, uh, today you went on a time machine and went back to the 80s for a moment. You're welcome. Um, but Carmen was a big feature in the 90s, uh, and is for some today still, and he had a song about Lazarus come out, um, and I'm, I'm very tempted to start singing it. Um, but Lazarus, come forth, I command you now, um, come forth. And, and this is what happens. Jesus stands on the outside, and Lazarus comes wrapped up in, in the clothes. He comes still like, he can't move, and they've got to unwrap him. He's been raised to life, and he, and he says he comes out still in, his, in the garments. Now we have a third wedding. The only other wedding we know about Jesus' funeral. Sorry, it's definitely not a wedding. <laughs> uh, and, and here we had another one in Luke 7. And Jesus is walking into a small village. A village exists today. There's about 200 people that live in it. This, this tiny village. We don't know why Jesus is going to this, through it. In, I don't. I don't know the maps and directions well enough to understand. But he's going through the small village. And as he arrives, he sees the funeral party coming out of town. They're coming out of town because you don't bury bodies in the town. You bury bodies out of the town. And so they're all coming. Music's playing. Mum's in the front. Uh, the Jewish tradition was that the, the woman, the mum, goes to the front of the party or the, or the woman, the wife, cries, crying, blah, blah, blah. Um, and they're ahead, and he sees this. And, yeah, and the Bible says, Luke says, that he has compassion on this moment. He doesn't know these people. But he has compassion. Why? Because he's the author of life. He's not familiar with death. He's not about death. He's not, he's not a, um, close to death. He's the enemy of death. He has compassion. He's broken for these people. And he says to the woman a surprising thing. He walks up to the mom and he says, Stop crying. He probably doesn't say it with the finger. I'm just doing it for it. He says, stop crying. It's interesting to me that he says, stop crying to her before he does. He does it. He's Same with the flutes and that. Just stop crying. And then he touches the, the, the thing that the child is carried on. The, the word's there, but I don't know. It's the beer, but it doesn't sound right. Because beer is something you drink, not carry dead people on. B-I-E-R or something like that. He touches it, but it's the, it's the thing they hoist the bo- dead body on. The minute, the minute he touches it, he's ceremonially unclean if there's a dead body on that. And again, Jesus, you know, like when he touches sick people, is playing with the law. 
he, he should be now ceremonially unclean, except he says to the boy, sit up. Young man, sit up. And the young man sits up and talks to Jesus. And then it says that Jesus gives the young man back to his mum. So you can't be ceremonially unclean because the boy's alive. <laughs> and Jesus once again shows his sovereignty and power over death. The enemy of death has walked back into a funeral and ruined another funeral. It's over. I mean, there are some parties you should stop. And, and death is one. That Jesus is, that's his primary thing that he's going to stop, is the party of death. The, the, the ultimate funeral, with Je- that's what Jesus is doing. So Jesus is terrible at funerals, but why is Jesus terrible at funerals? Jesus says in his own words in John 10, 10, he says, The thief comes, so he's talking about Satan, only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came, this is why Jesus is terrible at funerals, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. When Jesus is face to face with death at a funeral, there is an image of uh, Satan has come to steal, to kill and destroy I have come that they may have life and life abundantly, oil and water, they can't mix, and Jesus, the author of life, comes and gives life. In in the three times we know he he intercepts a funeral. Now Jesus can't make a career of running from funeral to funeral. That's not his point. He's ultimately trying to to, uh, save us eternally, not just bring us back to life. Lazarus died again. This young man died again. The girl died again, eventually, at some point in their life. But he's showing uh, visibly many times. In, many times in the Bible, you see how what, what, when God's kingdom comes, he shows us what his kingdom's like uh, in this kind of like loud and unforgettable way so that we can understand who he is. And then he continues on with his ultimate message. So, for example, when, when Jesus had ascended into heaven and the church was left with the apostles, and um, was it Ananias and Sapphira go and lie about the property they've sold and the money they've given and then they turn into a pillar of salts. I mean, you've lied about money that you've given probably in your life. Why don't you turn into a pillar of salt? Or, or if you haven't about that, you probably what, the reason that they were turned into a pillar of salt, Peter says, is that they lied to the Holy Spirit. I'm sure at some point you and I have lied to the Holy Spirit, at least in our hearts. Why don't we turn into a pillar of salt? Well, thank God that, again, I'm just, what I'm trying to show you is that uh, what God does as we read the Scriptures is there's kind of like these dramatic moments to show us what He's like, and then he kind of gets on with the message. If we stay in this dramatic moment, none of us would leave the house. It would be terrifying. Well, I, I don't know. You know we'd be t- but God kind of shows us the holiness there. and shows us how holy he is and, what, and what, uh, how serious it is to walk with the Spirit. Whatever. And, and then we kind of move. The author of life shows us what he's like. And then he moves on with his message. So there's three things I want to cover today. Um, as we look at this, this text, we'll look at the, the message here. And Nas, tell me... Um, no, never mind. Three things. Number one is, how do, so how do we get into this mess? This whole, like, death mess? How do we get into it? How do we get out of it? And then I want to ask you a question. And the question I'm going to ask you is, can these bones live? When we were driving from, on the Wanneroo Road to, to Subiaco to, to go to that prayer meeting, when we were driving to go to that prayer meeting... Nasia opened up the Bible, and she doesn't normally do this when we go on drives, but she opened up the Bible and, and read Ezekiel 37. 
Um, and she said, I feel like God is giving us this word for this church plant. And the question that Jesus asks the prophet in that text is, can these bones live? And so I want to ask you the question, because that's the question that God asked us as a church when we thought about starting. Can these bones live? Okay, so how do we get into this mess? A creator is, by nature, is a giver of life, right? So an author gives life to characters in a book. A baker gives life to raw ingredients. But, um, but God is the ultimate life giver. He, he breathed life into every created thing, including humanity. And so he is this author of life. Um, but not only is he the giver of life, he's the source of life. So the characters, for example, in a book, if you think of Narnia, they can't go beyond the author. You know, none of the characters, Peter and them in, in C.S. Lewis's um, Narnia, he can't now begin his own journey in his own set of books and just continue in his own way. Thanks, C.S. Lewis, for uh, giving me a good start, but I'll be okay from here. Do you, do you know what I mean? Unless C.S. Lewis continues to write about Peter, Peter stops when the last dot is, is put at the end of the book. C.S. Lewis is the source of life to Peter. And for us, in an ultimate sense... God is our source of life. But what Adam and Eve did uh, wrong is that they believed a lie of Satan that they could survive by themselves. That they were now breathed into life by God, but God wasn't also their source of life. That they were ultimately their source of life. That they could be like God. That they could live like God. That they could rule like God. And so they, 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 in a sense, rejected God as the source of life, not the, bre- not the breath of life. They kind of went like, yeah, fine, God. They were deistic, in a sense. God has breathed us into life. We're, we're not idiots. We know that. But now we're fine by ourselves. We'll continue the story as we will. Someone said self-will. I think, I think it was Stan. Now we will will the rest of the story on, and you can't do that. That's death. And so death happens straight away. And that's what God had said, you know, if, when you, if you disobey me, this day you'll die. Death enters, enters creation straight away because they've left their source. They've turned to self-reliance. Humanity is going to sustain itself. The problem is, and, and this goes on today, and yet the problem is that we cannot defy death. We can't. Even to this day, as advanced as we are, we still cannot defy death. The best you can do, if you've got enough money, is get yourself super frozen so that in the future, if someone can defy death, they'll somehow bring you back to life. Ridiculous. To defy death, you have to have a source of life. And humanity doesn't have that. Not without God. And that's how we got ourselves into that mess. And so this is how we've been in that mess ever since, as Adam and Eve rejected God, as Adam and Eve disobeyed God. We have to access God, and this is exactly what we've turned around. So ever since we rejected God, turned away from God, humanity has been born into the reality of death. And it's not just the death of life, it's a thousand deaths in life. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's two sons, experience death before they ever die. Cain is jealous. He experienced the death of love for his brother, the death of brotherly love 
and he gets jealous and, and angry and murders his brother. And then Abel does experience physical death. But Cain experienced death long before he put Abel to death. Jealousy, unforgiveness, bitterness, anger. The death of forgiveness, the death of kindness, the death of patience, the death of healing, the death of hopefulness, the death of relationship, the death of commitments. There's a thousand deaths that can be experienced in life. Paul says, while we know that the rejection of God produces death, we not only pursue the rejection of God, we endorse it. Romans 1.32, he's talking over there, he's talking about a particular type of sin, but if you look at the context of what it's saying, it's, it's, it's an outcome of rejecting God. Even while we know that rejecting God leads to death, we not only do it, we endorse that other people do it as well. Let's go on living by ourselves without Him. Thank you, God, for giving me life. This is for Christians as well, not just non-Christians. We can be like Adam and Eve. Thank you, God, for giving me life in Jesus. I've got it from here. That's an Adam and Eve kind of attitude. So humanity without God experiences thousands of different deaths. Every single person in this room, including myself, this is what I was saying to you. Why did we almost rush back to California? Because we had experienced so much death, so much pain, so much brokenness. We, had, we just had nothing left. So we were just going to go home and try to start over again. Everyone in this room has experienced certain types of death. Some, some are unavoidable. Life is difficult and it brings suffering along. But others are, are not necessary. There's life that God wants to breathe into our lives, but we stand in this position and we go, it's okay, God, I got it from here. Humanity by itself. So how do we get out of this mess? Point number two. Well, Paul says, uh, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Tim Keller says it well. He doesn't, I heard him once answer this question, you know, what is hell like? Or, or um, can you describe hell? And he said, he didn't answer the question. Instead, he said, what it definitely is, is getting what you want, which is not God. And not getting God means not getting anything good, because God is the source of good. So hell is the absence of all good, because it's the absence of God. And all the while, that was what you wanted. So, and I like that, because that is for sure. The other stuff is not for sure. But um, this is, you know, the wages of sin is death. Death is what we've, not what we wanted. We wanted something else. But that's what we, we kind of wanted in, in when, we want our, when we want our own wills, that's what we're aiming for. That's what the promise is. It's going to lead to death. When, we, when we're committed to getting what we want, when we're committed to our own way, when we're committed to our own thoughts, when we're committed to our own feelings, when we're committed to our own sins, we're committed to our own death. The wages of sin, the outcome of, of sin is death. What, 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 it, what, it, what it gets as its payment is death. That's what we're working for. That's what we're striving for. That's what our wills tend towards. But then Paul says, but the gift of God is eternal life. When we, when we stop 
listening to ourselves, when we stop living by our will, when we stop being the highest voice in our lives, when we start living under the Word of the Lord, when we start uh, keeping in step with the Holy Spirit, when we start letting God uh, confront our pride, when we start bowing down to Him and accepting His will in our lives, the gift of, of God is, is life. You don't earn it. You, don't get, uh, you can't strive for it. You can't give something for it. You just stop earning death and receive the gift of life. It's a, it's a complete contrast. I mean, if, 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 this is how, if this was like a physical thing that we could do today, you know, your, your job was, you know, the harder you work, the more is going to get taken from you. If you're going to work 40 hours this week, um, your mortgage payment is going to be taken from you. And if you come back to work next week, your car is going to get taken from you. And if you come back the next week, one of your family members is going to get taken. And the harder you work, the more is going to get taken from you. But if you will just stop doing that, and you will just receive, we will give you everything that defines life. I don't know who we is in the story. None of us would go to work tomorrow. It would be insane. And yet that's what Paul's saying. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Stop working for death. Receive Christ and all that He has for you. Not just eternal life, but all the life that comes with it. So His will for us is this beautiful gift of life. So what, what is this gift? So the gift... Yeah, thank you. Who said that? <laughs> Lizzie. <laughs> thank you. Yes. Yes. Just in case you thought the gift was a new car or a mortgage uh, or something. It's not. It's Jesus. First. Then a whole bunch of other life experiences next. But Jesus. So God enters the creation. God enters the story. C.S. Lewis enters Narnia to go save it. As if. What C.S. Lewis is telling us, those, those who, who don't know, I think everyone knows, but I'll let, let you know, is that Aslan is God entering the story. And C.S. Lewis is just writing the gospel. Jesus enters the story. He enters humanity. He enters our story and comes and lives in our place. He puts on our flesh. He faces everything we face. He, he suffers through temptations. He suffers through suffering. He suffers loss. He suffers shame. He suffers pain. And all the while, He does something slightly different. He doesn't turn uh, to His will Every time he turns to God's will. We see this most dramatically in the, uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is under so much stress and strife. He, he's, he bleeds blood out of his sweat gland, pores and um, he cries out, Not my will be done, but yours. That's the ultimate difference between uh, humanity and Jesus is that in his humanity... He said, God, I refuse to pick up my will. My, in my will, I will not go to the cross. In my will, I will not be able to put you first. But your will for me be done. I lay myself down. And He did for us what none of us could do. He never rejected the Father. 
So he chose life rather than death. And then through his death, he gave us his life. He, he wins us back eternal life, but not only a change of position from death to life, but also the experience of life in life. Jody Erickson Tadar, I, I don't know how to say her name, but that's how I say her name. <laughs> could be right, could be wrong. She, um, she became a quadriplegic. Since becoming a quadriplegic, she's led thousands of people to faith in Jesus. Being a quadriplegic is not something any of us would choose. She says, in her words, that it's been the best part of her life because she's seeing people come to Jesus. Not because of the fact that her husband has to wake up every single night to turn her over in bed. Not because even when he wanted to end their marriage, she said, sorry, I'm God's gift to you. You're stuck with me. This is it for us. There's not going to be any physical healing in this life for, for her. Probably. Outside of a miracle, for sure. But thousands of people have moved from death to life because of her condition and the testimony that she shares on stage. She's experiencing more life in her condition as a quadriplegic than she ever experienced before that. All I'm trying to say is that Jesus is more than able to ruin the funeral of whatever we're experiencing in life. Jesus is more than able to come into our circumstances as the author of life and bring life to our circumstances. In what ways are you experiencing death? Can the author of life come into her quadriplegic circumstance and bring life? Thousands of people have come to Christ. The answer is yes. What about yours? So with the way we get out of this mess is that we uh, get, get called to, by the author of life. Come to me. And we put our faith in Jesus as we've done. Number three, the question is, can these bones live? So I told you that before King's Cross was started, this is what Nas read to me on the road that my great-grandfather built or, or helped build. And I'm just going to read you the beginning of it because the, it starts with there's this valley of dry bones. In the beginning of the story, there's, the, the prophet sees a valley of dry bones and God comes to him. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he, he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So this is like dead, dead, dead bones. And he said to me, this is God, can, son of man, can these bones live? By the end of it, these bones have turned into an alive gathering of mighty people of God. These are the people of God that God has renewed their life. I think I made a mistake when we prayed about this 10 years ago. No one called me on it, but I appreciate it. We interpreted it like this, and I don't think it's wrong. I just don't think that's exactly what was happening. I interpreted it and went, yes, God, we pray for this area, the dryness, the deadness. We pray that you breathe life over it. 
But the text is actually about God breathing life on the Israelites, the people of God coming to life. It's not so much a text about revival as a text about renewal. It's about the people of God experiencing the newness of life of God. Not so much the people that don't know God being coming to life. Of course that, of course that is as well. It's a great. That's what God does to us. He moves us from death to life. That's, a, that's obvious. That's known. But this is about the people of God being renewed by God. It's for us. So my question to you is, can these bones live? In your life? Where are you experiencing dryness? Where are you experiencing deadness? Can these bones live? The prophet says, God, only you know. I think that was his clever way. If he said no, that would be faithless. If he said yes, he'd be responsible for doing something. (laughs) Okay, show me. But he smartly says, uh, God, only you know. And God goes, okay, I'll show you. And he starts putting tendons on bones and, and skin, and then it's beautiful. Go read the rest of the text. God methodically, methodically builds a people again. Can these bones live? Yes. Lazarus, come out the tomb. Can these bones live? Yes. Young girl, wake up. Can these bones live? Yes. Young man, I say to you, rise. Sit up. Can these bones live? Yes. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, whoever believes in me has eternal life. If you're here and you're not a Christian, can these bones live? Can you have eternal life? Jesus says, yes. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. Turn to him. What about our experience of life? Paul wrote this report. The life... I now live in the flesh. I like, he, I like how clearly he has to distinguish what he's talking about. In Galatians, the life I live in the flesh, the here and the now, not the then and the there, but the here and the now. I live by faith in the Son of God. My experience of life here is different. It's a life that's only possible by faith in the Son of God. I'm not experiencing It's still a dead life. I'm experiencing life by faith in the Son of God, who is what? The author of life. So I was thinking about it. And just trying to make it super practical. Can these stingy bones live? Can these financially fearful bones live? Can these poverty-stricken bones live? Scripture says... Yes. Give as it has been given to you. 1 Corinthians 8, I think. 2 Corinthians 8, Paul, Paul talks to this, about this church that gives and, and he's talking to them about how to give to the other church that needs. And his reason for it is, is give as God has given to you his best. As God gave, generously gave you his son. Give like that. Because what happened? God generously gave His Son who was a seed who died and in His death had multiplied to many sons and daughters throughout time and space. So as you give, give generously, give your best as you sow your seed into others, then we'll see multiplication of fruit. Give your best. So yes, give as has been given to you. God's best given to you, so give generously. 
So God's not stingy. God's not fearful. God is generous, and so He gives generously. It's a sign of His love to us. He gives to us generously, and so God says to us, hey, if you're able to, to the degree that you have, this is not about how much. This is not even about money. It's about a heart that understands the generosity of God and then pours out generosity to others in the ways and opportunities that God gives us. Can these bitter bones live? The Scriptures say, yes. Forgive as you have been forgiven. You can live in the death of unforgiveness all you want. I mean, you, you shouldn't, and you can't, but you can. But you shouldn't. I'm starting to think, Ant has this kind of comedy skit, and now I've got his voice stuck in my head. I'm going to move on. You should move into the experience of life, which is forgive as you have been forgiven. That's not talking about eternal life. This is talking about the here and now. You're in a situation where someone... You can walk in the freedom that God has given to you through His forgiveness of you through Jesus Christ and the experience of life can now be had by forgiving someone that doesn't deserve it. Someone who can't earn it. It's going to be merciful. It's going to be gracious. It's going to be painful. It's going to feel like a crucifixion. But it's life-giving. Forgive because you've been forgiven. God will never ask us to do something He hasn't done for us first. Can these sad bones live? The answer is... Yes. In weakness, he conquered death so that in our weakness, he could make us strong. That's what Scripture says, that um, when you're weak, he makes us strong. You know what that anticipates? What does it anticipate? That we get weak. Sadness or downness or brokenness or is not unexpected. God doesn't... You know, this is not a word of faith preach. Just name it and claim it. Scriptures anticipate incredible weakness in us. Incredible difficulty in us. That's why the comforting word is when we are weak. Not if, when. When we're weak, we can know that He can make us strong. Lord, I need you. I need you right now. I need you every hour, but particularly this hour. Because there's this bombardment from the outside and even the inside of my will that's turning me away from you and making me believe lies that are death-giving. Uh, Help me to be strengthened by you. By the Son of God who faced death to give me life. Who became weak to make me strong. So that death doesn't have a claim over me. When, when Peter's faith, uh, in his faith, he started sinking in the water. Remember when he, when he tried to walk to Jesus who was walking? And then Jesus started, Peter started walking out to him and then remembered he was walking in the water or something and started sinking. And his faith is sink, he's, he's sinking because his faith is sinking. He's thinking more about the water than about Jesus. And we all do this every day or, or most days, every week, every month, every year. Sometime, at some point we start thinking more about the water than Jesus. And we start sinking and we get ankle deep, then knee deep, then waist deep. And, sure, and we just sink, 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 sink. What is Jesus doing? To, what did Jesus do to Peter? He held out his arm. And he picked Peter up and lifted him. It doesn't mean that we're, going to, we're not going to experience in life moments where we sink, where, where the, the context becomes bigger than anything else. But in those moments, we need to remember there's Jesus holding out his arm, wanting and ready and willing to pick us up. We don't even need our own faith in those moments. He has his faith. We can just grab his hand. 
he can pick us up. Jesus, Peter was raised not because he had enough faith, but because Jesus had enough faith for him. So Satan comes to rob, kill, and destroy. He celebrates a thousand funerals. He dances on our graves. He throws parties over our deaths. He boasts. And hell is filled with headlines of daily deaths. But the author of life comes says stop they're not dead just asleep watch this can these bones live can he breathe life in your life if you believed him for your eternal life can you believe him for these other Experiences of life in life? Can these bones live? What relationship has died that God can breathe life into? What relationship is seeing decay that God can bring, breathe life to? I had a wonderful chat with a brother this morning. Yeah, I just won't embarrass him by saying who. He said this prayer, I just want, I want my story just to be, give glory to God and be encouraging. It's exactly right. And he said this, what I've learned is not, not just to pray, but to expect that a kind God wants to answer those prayers. That's a big difference. A relationship that shouldn't be seeing decay is seeing decay. Don't just do the right thing and pray and then move on. I've done, I've prayed now. Now we'll see. Stop. Expect God to do something. Watch and watch it. Watch it happen. Wait for it. Look for it. Anticipate it. Because a kind father, the author of life, wants to breathe life. And when we are put out our hand drowning in a decaying relationship, experiencing uh, stealing, killing, and destroying. The author of life says, I've come to give life and life abundantly. God, please breathe life on this relationship. Watch out. Look for it. What about hope? What about affection? What about a godly fruit in your life that's dead? Can these bones live? Interesting to note, just lastly, and then I'll, I'll, uh, Josh will take us into communion. Interesting to note how Jesus comes. Jesus doesn't come fiery. He doesn't come boastfully in, in the scripture. I'll ask you, you can tell me, why, why does Jesus do what he does in this text? Why does he go to the woman and say, stop crying, and to the boy, rise up? Why? The scripture tells us it's not my own thought and, and it shouldn't be your own thought. It's, it's right there. Just, just look at it. Why? It says he had compassion. Absolute strangers on his way on a long journey but he sees death and what does it do to him? There's a, there's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Greek word that, that talks about it's this word splachna something like that. 
it's just like this word that like comes, it, it sounds like it comes from your guts, but that's, that's kind of where compassion was understood to be, at the seat of the emotions, right in your, like the center of your life, compassion bursts forth. In other words, uh, what, what would be understood from the text is that compassion, at his deepest point, at his deepest character and nature, Christ was compassionate. If you could cut him open to his most minuscule cell in the very center of his being, you would find it full of compassion. That's who he is to the nth degree. And that's to people he doesn't know. He knows you, and he knows you by name, and he's died for you on the cross. How much compassion do you suppose he has for areas where there's death in life? On compassion, he said to her, stop. In the one story, the one story, the one story where there's someone that he knows, what did Jesus do? Jesus wept. Oh, he weeps. It's his heart to bring life. It's his heart to breathe life, to breathe hope, to heal it's his heart to destroy death. It's his heart to tell the flute players of hell to stop. It's his heart to speak life. When we put out our hand knee deep in circumstances, waist deep, shoulder deep, he doesn't have a finger going, not again. He has a hand that goes, this is what I long to do. So he comes to the graveside with compassion. And the author of life, the C.S. Lewis of Narnia, comes into our story and he writes the pages of life into our story. Can you hear his compassionate voice? Do you fear turning to him because you think he's impatient or unkind? because you don't think you deserve anything, or because your faith is small? Can you hear how compassionate and kind He is? Can you see how much He leans in, leans over to reach us? And can you hear Him ask you this question with compassion that I can't produce in the tone of my voice, with kindness that isn't in mark tapping and, and is, has never been spoken with the, the, this air moving across my vocal cords and made into words from our mouth. I could never do it like he could do it. But if you could imagine it, can you imagine him asking you, can these bones live? 